Amen. Open your Bibles this evening to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. What would it take to believe in Jesus? What would it take to believe in Jesus? Would it take a forerunner, a prophesied forerunner at that, to announce him? Would it take the declaration of that forerunner, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Would it take a supernatural show at his baptism, complete with the voice of God the Father and the descending of the Holy Spirit of God? Would it take his faithful followers to announce and to confirm his identity? Would it take Andrew and James and John and Nathaniel and Peter all saying, he is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would it take signs and wonders, water turned into wine, 120 to 180 gallons of the best wine? Would it take more than that? Signs greater than that, more astounding than that? What would it take to believe in Jesus? Well, tonight in our verses, Jesus actually tells us, he actually gives us the sign, a sign that is above all other signs, the end-all, be-all of signs, and he tells us, when you see this sign, when you observe this sign, you can know, you can be certain, I am who I say that I am. Tonight our message is entitled, The Greatest Sign, The Greatest Sign. Tonight we're in John chapter 2, tonight verses 12 through 22. Again, we're going verse by verse, every single verse in the Gospel of John. Tonight, moving right along, John chapter 2, verses 12 through 22, the greatest sign. I'm going to ask you if you would, if you would stand with me in the honor and the reverence of the reading of God's Word. John chapter 2, beginning here in the 12th verse, God's Word says this. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture in the word which Jesus had spoken. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come tonight. We're thankful for this night. We're thankful for this opportunity. Lord, we're thankful that we can gather with, with, with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ saved 
of no work of our own, but saved in your grace and your power. Lord, we come and I, I pray that you are known in this evening, that you are exalted in this time. I pray now as we begin to study your word, I pray knowing that you hear this prayer, that it would truly be a supernatural event, not a normal event. I pray, Lord, that you would speak. I pray that it would change us tonight, that we would be transformed, built up, encouraged, convicted if need be in the hearing of your word. I pray, Lord, that it's not normal. I pray that if there are some and maybe many that are hearing tonight that do not know you, I pray that in the revelation of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, that tonight they might trust you, this very night, the 11th night, that they might trust you as their Lord and Savior. And Lord Jesus, I pray that every bit of it, every piece of it is for your namesake, for your glory, for your honor, for you are worthy. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Tonight as we begin, remember the questions that John is answering in his gospel. We've endeavored into his gospel, and as we travel through his gospel, I want you to remember the questions that John is answering in his gospel. Who is Jesus, and what is the gospel? And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, those two questions are going to frame our entire study. Who is Jesus and what is the gospel? Now, I want to say this tonight, and I want to be certain of this. Sometimes I think we might slip up and not, and not quite remember this the way we ought. Be sure and understand tonight, what we're looking at is the word of God. What we're digging into tonight is the revelation of God. And I'll just tell you, if we actually want to know who Jesus is, if we actually want to know what the gospel is, this is where we go because God is going to give us his answer. Now, I want you to be sure of that tonight. You don't need the answer of a preacher. You don't need the answer of a church or a denomination. We want to know the answer from God, and this is his word, and he is telling us, this is my son, this is our Savior, and this is his gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what an awesome thing that is. Tonight we go to the word of God. Now for context tonight, we're 11 days in. Jesus has now performed his first miracle. At the wedding in Cana, he has turned water into wine. It was an astounding event, a miraculous event, revealing our supernatural Savior. Our Savior is supernatural. And this miraculous event reveals that. And then following that, we move to our account, to our verses tonight. And so then we come to verse 12. All right, let's begin by looking at our verses. And after this, after that event, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Now, the Bible says here in verse 12 that he goes down to Capernaum. It's actually leaving uh, the hill country and going down to the seaside of this city, Capernaum. It is northeast of Cana. It is on the Sea of Galilee. And so he and this crew, they go down to the city of Capernaum. Now, we're not sure why they go there. I was reading a lot of folks try to guess, but we're not sure how long they stay there. 
Now, there's a lot of folks trying to say that. Some say they move there. Uh, it doesn't look like they stay there very long from our verses, but we're not sure how long they stay there. We're not sure what they do while they're there. But we do know they leave and they go to the city, Capernaum. We also know that this city will become his base of operation, his home base there in Galilee. And after this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. All right, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. After some time, we're not sure again the length of time, Jesus makes his way to the south and yet upward, a climb and elevation to the city of Jerusalem. So he leaves Capernaum, he travels to the south, and he makes his way to Jerusalem. Well, John tells us why. John reports and says that he is going, as, as many Jews would, for the celebration of, for the observance of the Passover. Now understand, this was a yearly event when the Jews would sacrifice a lamb to remember and to commemorate God's deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt. Uh, it was a reminder, a very, a very visual reminder of the blood of that lamb that caused the death angel to pass over the homes that were covered under that blood. And most of all, it was pointing the people to God's ultimate and final deliverance through his perfect lamb, the promised Messiah. On the Passover day, from 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock in the afternoon, to think about that, on the Passover day from 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock in the afternoon, almost uncountable numbers of lambs were killed as part of, the, of this observance. And so we're remembering our God is our deliverer. We're remembering that it's in the blood of the lamb that these families are delivered. We're remembering that there is coming the final deliverer, our Messiah. And so in, in these hours, these many lambs are being killed and as their blood runs out, it is this visual reminder of these promises of God, of the faithfulness of God. Now, how wild and how perfect that Jesus comes to Jerusalem for this event. Now, it's going to be that way when he comes for his crucifixion, but I'll just tell you how, how awesome, how, how wild, how profound it is that it's during this event that Jesus comes to Jerusalem. How wild, how perfect that the Lamb of God, the true deliverer from God, slips into town for this event. Now, sometimes people ask me, do Christians celebrate the Passover? Sometimes folks will ask me that. There are some groups uh, that do celebrate it. There are some groups that seem to be growing that are celebrating it. And folks will want to know, do Christians celebrate the Passover? Well, let me just tell you, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, it says that our Passover lamb that has died is Jesus. And so I'll just tell you, all of these Passovers 
were pointing to him. And so listen, yes, we remember the Passover. Yes, we study the Passover. Yes, there are invaluable things to learn from the Passover. But I want to tell you, on this side of the resurrection, we celebrate Jesus, the victor, the true lamb of the Passover. Passover the Jews was near, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Verse 14. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. During this time while gathering at the temple, the Jews would make their offerings. They would bring their offerings, their sacrifices to the temple. Uh, Every male above 20 years of age had to pay their temple tax. They had to pay it in Jewish coinage. And and because so many of them had traveled in, and so many of them make the way there, an industry had sprung up that would sell you your sacrifice. And that's what this is about. Why are these folks there? Why are they doing this? One industry had sprung up of folks that would sell you a sacrifice. You didn't want to bring it all that way. You didn't want to transport it all that way. You didn't want the hardship of making the journey with your sacrifice, with your offering. And so these guys would just sell you your offering when you got there. Well, that may have started off to be well-meaning, But the system had become corrupt. And the traders there in the courtyard, they're paying the temple's officials for a spot to sell. They're renting a spot to sell out of. And then after that, competition begins to spring up between the vendors. And you need a lamb. And you know what? I'll make you a better deal on a lamb over here. And you need need a a bird. And I'll make you a a better deal on a bird over here. And and price gouging was common. You know what? There's a deadline. And it's, it's time to be here. And all these crowds are here. And so price gouging was common. And they were charging a profit for all of this merchandise. And the temple of God, the place of worship, had basically become a market, had basically become a public fair, and now it's it's noisy and it's bustling and there's haggering going on and they're saying, you know what, I can get one better over there and this guy has one over here and it's become a public fair. And lost in the hubbub was the heart of worship. Lost in all of that was the honor and the reverence that was due of God. Really lost in all of that was the love that should have been shown for God. And religion had become an event. Worship had become an industry. And worldliness had mixed all the way through it. Let me tell you something. I could say a lot right here. And I'd like to say a lot right here, but I'm I'm just going to say this, and I want you to listen very carefully. Be sure and hear me tonight. There is no ticket to hear the gospel, and there is no price that is charged for the good news of a risen, resurrected Savior. And when the word of God is proclaimed at a price, when the word of God is proclaimed at a cost, and I don't care if it's $29 for the event or if it's $99 for the weekend or if it's $34 for the simulcast at your church, when there is a cost attached to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is not the plan of our Savior Jesus. He paid for it all on the cross, and it's of no charge when we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I drive by places and they got 6,000 seats and they got them all full and it's $99 a person and when you get in there, they'll sell you some shirts and a hat and they'll take up an offering to boot. Listen, that's not the plan of our Savior Jesus. The gospel is free and there's not a ticket attached to it. That's not even the sermon. That's just part of it. Verse 15. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the muddy changers and overturned their tables. Jesus, we find, is angered at the abuse going on there. The Bible says he makes a scourge, and that is a whip made, made up of ropes, most likely the ropes that had bound the animals, most likely the lead ropes of the animals. He, he picks up these ropes and he fashions a whip And the Bible says he drives them out of the temple courtyard. He actually physically takes this and drives them out. He overturns their tables, their fancy money cups. He turns them over and he pushes them out of the temple. Listen to this. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. I want you to listen to this. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, John the Baptist, John the Testifier. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and a purifier of the silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. This was prophesied of the Messiah. You know what? There's going to be a forerunner and he's going to come and testify. But when the Lord comes, you want to know when he comes? He's going to go to the temple and he's going to refine it that we might worship in righteousness. Verse 16. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Now I read that. I read these verses and I think, wow, what a response that is. Wow, that's not what you would expect. And if you think about it, that's truly not what we expect. A a whip that Jesus, our Lord Jesus, fashions a whip and he drives them out. That's what he does. Jesus does that. Now, before we move, let me tell you what false religion does. And I was thinking, why was he upset? And why is this such a big deal? In fact, we're warned of it all the way through Scripture. We're warned of it in the Old Testament. We're reminded of those warnings in the New Testament. Before we move on, let me tell you what false religion, false worship does. And it's worth saying tonight, let me tell you this. The first thing is this. False worship, false religion leaves people hopeless. And I'll just tell you, that's what it does, and that's the plan of Satan. He, he comes along and he wants to give you a false religion, a false worship. And when you embrace that false worship, there is no hope in the false. That's the reality of it. There's no hope in a duty that's carried out for a show. And people in false religion, people in false worship, they will be hopeless. 
You look around today and all these things spring up and they jump in there and it's exciting for a while and you watch them, it's not very long and the wheels start to come off and the trouble starts to spring up and it is hopeless when you embrace the faults. False worship leaves people hopeless. Second thing it does, and man, this is our day. Second thing false worship, false religion does is it makes people comfortable in their sin. It makes people comfortable in their sin. Here's the reality. The reality is the truth convicts. The reality is the truth leads us to godly sorrow that would lead us to repentance. And false religion, false worship, it may puff us up for a while. It may make us feel good for a while, but it always makes us fine with sin. It always makes us accepting of sin. It makes us comfortable in our sin. Today, over and over and over again, we hear of churches and pulpits and preachers that are compromising on sin. They say, you know what? Maybe God has changed. Maybe God's word has changed. Maybe it's not the same today. Maybe we got to reinterpret it so it fits our political correctness. And they come along and they're compromising on sin. Listen to me tonight. Be sure of this. False religion, false worship always makes people comfortable in their sin. Third thing is this. This is the most terrible, as bad as those are. False religion, false worship robs God of his glory. That's also the plan of Satan. That's also the trick of Satan. That's what he's always sought to do. False religion, false worship robs God of his glory. And I'll tell you, I believe this is why Jesus is so upset here. When the, when the truth is actually embraced, it exalts God. When the truth is embraced, it exalts Jesus. And if you want to find the truth, you're going to find Jesus high and lifted up. The truth always illuminates his glory. But notice this. False religion exalts people. And we start to say, oh, did you hear about him? Oh, did you hear about that preacher? Oh, did you hear about that following? And more than that, false worship starts to exalt us. And we become the focus of everything. And it's all about me. And it's all about the things I want. It's all about the things I desire. And it's all about me getting my blessings. And it robs God of his glory. Listen, our gospel is about the glory of our Savior. His name is Jesus. It's not about me and it's not about you. False religion robs God of his glory. All right, verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, I try to picture this event. Here, here are these new disciples. Here are these new followers and here they go, we're here for the Passover, and what a, what a big day this is going to be, and, and we're here with the Christ, we're here with the Messiah, and how awesome this is going to be. And they get there, and he starts turning over tables. He gets there, they get there, and he starts fashioning together a whip and driving them out. They're watching that. they got to be astounded. They're watching that, and they have, they have to be shocked. I, I, I'm sure this is nothing like they expected. And yet the Bible says they started remembering Psalm 69, verse 9 is the verse. 
and zeal for your house will consume me. That's what the psalmist says. And they start to piece it together. One more piece put together. One more piece put together. You know what? The Savior, our Messiah's zeal for the house of God is going to fill him, going to consume him. And they remember that. They start to piece it together. Verse 18. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things. Now I want you to remember in verse 16, he called the temple my father's house. Now that's a crazy statement. He's standing in the temple and he says, my, my father's house. Now not only that, he has acted in self-righteousness. He has put them out of the, the courtyard there. He has publicly condemned their actions. And in verse 18, basically they say, who do you think you are? Who, who do you think you are and what authority do you come and do these things? And notice what they say. It says this. What sign do you show us? Who do you think you are? How do we know who you are? What sign do you show us? Remember in Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians, he said, and the Jews asked for a sign. That's what he said. Well, guess what? The Jews are asking for a sign, and they say, we need you to do something. We need to, to see a sign, some, some wonder to prove who you are. Show us a sign. We need to see a sign. <clears throat> Verse 19. Jesus answered them. Now, I like that. It ties it to verse 18. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days... I will raise it up. Now, verse 19 is not separated from verse 18. Verse 19 is the answer, the response to verse 18. Verse 19, Jesus says, you want a sign, then here is your sign. They say, give us a sign. He says, I'll give you a sign. Destroy this temple in three days, and I will raise it up. Notice it says, destroy this temple. It doesn't say, I'll destroy this temple. It's meaning you, you, talking to the Jews, you destroy this temple. And he says this, and I will raise it up. That's very important. You destroy this temple, and I will raise it up. Verse 20. The Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days? At this point, Herod had been remodeling the temple 46 years. It's going to be a few more years before he's finished. But they say it's taken all of these years, 46 years, he's not even done, and you're going to build it in three days? That doesn't make any sense. That's impossible. Verse 21. Wow. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Verse 22. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, I want to tell you here again already, John writes the beginning already knowing the end. I, I watched that all the way through this gospel. He can't help himself. He knows the ending as he writes the beginning. And again, he can't help but tip off what he knows. Now, I like that about him. He's excited about the ending. 
he reports here when he, when Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. Now, here we are in the account of him saying it, of him telling them, but he says all the way back to the the resurrection, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, I want you to stay with me. I want you to get what Jesus is saying here. He is saying, how will you know that I am your hope? How will you be sure that I was the truth? How will you know that this is not some false religion in a world of false religions? How will you know this is not some promise that was made for personal gain? How will you know in a world of lies? How will you know when the courtyard of the temple is full of liars? How will you know? That's what Jesus is saying. How will you know? Listen to me, dear friend. Jesus says you will know when the grave is empty. You will know when the tomb is void. Jesus says when you see me again, you can be sure that your Savior has come, that your salvation is secure, that your sins are forgiven. Jesus says... How will you know when you see me again? You will know. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. How will you know? You'll know in a risen, resurrected, living Savior. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Here we are tonight. How do we know our Savior? How can we be certain that he is our hope and our redemption? You see, you go around today and guess what? The public square is full of liars again. In fact, some of our pulpits are full of liars again, and you're going to wonder, how do I know when I have the truth? How do I know when I have my Savior in a world of fault, in a world of lies? How can we know? Listen to me today, friend. Listen. It is still the same. Today, we trust the ever-living one. Today we trust the one and the only one that's ever conquered the grave. That's the one that we trust. Today we trust the one that has died, actually physically died for my sins and for your sins. And yet dying, he lives again. He is our Savior and in that we can know. How do you know your Savior? He's the only one that conquered the grave. How do you know your Savior is the only one that went into the room and was there physically dead and walked out as the victor? That is how we know. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. Let me tell you tonight, here's the, here's the point to this message. We know our Savior. We know our Savior. We know our Savior. And if you're here tonight and you don't know your Savior, let me tell you about your Savior. Our Savior, Jesus, was born. God in the flesh, God came in the form of a man, Jesus. He came, he lived a life of no sin. Not one sin does he ever commit. He's able to offer himself in your place and my place as the sinless lamb of God. That's my gospel. For that, he goes to the cross of Calvary. They take him, they accuse him falsely. They put him on the cross of Calvary. And he takes as the perfect lamb of God, the 
the payment for sin, the anger of God, the wrath of God for sin is poured out upon him. And he's stretched out on that Roman cross. His hands and his feet are nailed there. There he suffers and there he dies, actually dies as the payment for sin. The Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. They take him off of that cross. He's dead. The payment is paid. They put him in his grave. Three days later, how do you know you have a Savior? Three days later, how do I know the shame has been born to somebody else? How do I know I have hope that I can move forward in? It's because he is not here. The grave is empty. He has risen. We have a Savior, and you can know him tonight. We have a Savior, and you can know him tonight. The Bible says if you'll call upon him, if you'll trust him for your salvation, if you'll profess with your mouth what you believe in your heart, here's what the Bible says. Not of any duty, not of any pigeons you got to buy, not of anything you got to do, but in the finished work of a resurrected Savior, you will be saved. That's the good news of our gospel. We know our Savior. We know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come and I, I thank you I praise you, I worship you, I exalt you. I'm thankful tonight as, as, a, as a sinner doomed in my sin, hopeless in my sin, that I can know that it's paid in you. I can know I have a remedy in you. I can know tonight I have a future in you because the tomb, the grave is empty. Lord, I pray in the preaching of this, I pray for us as believers that we are encouraged. I pray for us as believers that we're renewed. I, I, I pray for us as believers that we're reminded and I pray in that that we be faithful to tell the world of a, of a risen Savior. Well, Lord, I pray for some that are hearing right now that do not know you. And I pray that for them, guilty in their sin, condemned in their sin, bearing their own shame right now, they would turn to you and they would trust you. They'd find your grace that's infinite. They'd find your compassion They'd find salvation in your death and your burial and your resurrection. Lord, I pray that you'd remove any hindrance, that you'd stir in their hearts. Lord, I pray that tonight might be the night, the day of their salvation for your glory. Lord, we come tonight and again, we're thankful that we have hope. We're thankful that tonight we have good news and we praise you for it. We ask at this time that you would move, that you would work. And again, it would be for your name's sake. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close our service tonight with a time of response, a time of invitation. And I, I say it, but I want you to know I truly believe it. The most important thing we can do today is to respond to the truth of God's Word. We preach for a decision. We proclaim the good news that somebody might respond. And there's a response, as I said, for all of us. First off, if you're a believer, we ought to be encouraged tonight. If we're a believer in a sorry, messed up, crazy world that's spinning out of control, we ought to be encouraged tonight. We have good news. But if you're here or you're listening tonight and you don't know Jesus, you ought to be encouraged too because grace is available to you in the person of Jesus Christ. If you'll trust him, you will be saved. If you'll trust him, you will be saved. We're going to stand and sing a hymn of invitation. If God has spoken to you, if he's speaking to you, you step out and you come on. I'll meet you here. If you want to pray at the front or pray with me, you come on. I'll meet you here. As we stand and sing, you step out and you come on. I'll meet you here. <laughs>